RAF get enough brimstones to keep up its Syrian operation. The big truce in Syria is on, but will it stop the war? Why the army has signed up to the biggest training operation in Kenya? Do we know what the Russians want us to think of them? Mossad has got a new boss. Who is he? And learning to live with IS. The public spotlight is now on the RAF, which is flying sorties over and into Syria. Its top weapon is the precision-guided Brimstone missile. It's the weapon the Prime Minister said the United States wants to have in the coalition offensive. But it's expensive, and there are not many of them. I'm joined by the aerospace analyst and former RAF pilot Andrew Brooks, and as usual, our BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Um, Andrew Brooks, is Brimstone really the RAF's number one weapon? Well, it's one of the, if you like, clubs in the golf bag. If you want to take out some dodgy guy in um, a Toyo Land Cruiser, it's the ideal piece of work for that. If you want to blow up a heavily concreted bunker, sort of 10 foot underground, no, it's not. So you, you, it's horses for courses, it's weapons for target matching is really important. And only the tornado carries it. Why is that? Good question. It hasn't been integrated yet onto Typhoon is the official answer. Uh, they're working at it. Um, it should be getting on with it. I'm sure it is. You say the but official answer. Why do you say official answer? Well, I mean, they've had plenty of time to integrate it. It's just it's taking time. Now, like everything else in life, if you throw money at it, you'll get it done. But, of course, there's lots of other requirements for money. So, yes, the, the, the airplane's ready to it, but the integration of it, the software, is just taking time. So it'll be on um, Typhoon uh, soon, uh, and uh, I was assured last week that they're working really round the clock to get it in integrated but it's not it's not it's a brilliant weapon but it's not going to completely alter the scale of uh, of the effort once it's in on on typhoon i say it can only be used against certain targets so if you know there's a jihad john is going to drive down the road uh, you can get him out without killing anybody else around him if you precisionly guide it but i say that's what it will do it, it, it won't necessarily blow up a, a hardened shelter for example we were talking this time last week about how many brimstones the rf has do you know i don't actually because it's a secret number and i honestly don't know the answer so if i were to ask the Are question we likely to run out no, 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 no. I mean, it, it, what you want is dual-mode brimstone, the one that actually, you know, is really precise. And, and there are enough for what we require. And people say oh, the Americans want it. Well, they've said they've been wanting it now for at least eight years, as far as I'm aware. They still haven't put their money where their mouth is. So while everybody likes it, um, it's still not the answer to every prayer. And, of course, most air forces want a mix of weapons. And this is one, a crucial club, if you like, in the bag. Mm. But it's not the only club. Uh, Christopher, the RAF has been flying, what, for 12 months or more into Iraq, but publicly now centre stage. Does it have enough assets to carry out both operations? I go back, go back about three months and I heard the Chief of the Air Staff talking about this. And apparently, apparently, he said to the Prime Minister, listen, I can do Iraq or I can do Syria, but necessarily I can't do both at the same intensity, and you've got to understand that. And what has happened, remember, is that the RAF has simply shifted part of its emphasis 100 miles. It's the same role, it's the same sort of formation of squadrons. Um, you've got two aircraft, one doing uh, its traditional role in the tornado, 
another one which was essentially a sort of multi-role combat aircraft with a typhoon, doing not entirely its same role, but the point being, you've got the same asset, you haven't got any more to do twice the number of, uh, uh, of, of operations. Andrew Brooks, is the RAF running hot, to coin a phrase, used during the La Libya campaign? It is, and, and the question is how long can four, three squadrons, that's what we're talking about at present, three tornado squadrons who, as Christopher says, have been at it now for some considerable time, how long can you keep working them, if you like, over and over and over again without, if you like, it coming at the seams personnel-wise, fatigue-wise, retention-wise? You've got to bring the typhoons in, you know, and they're, they're coming to help. But again, there's only a finite number of them. They've got to defend the United Kingdom. There's other things to be done. There's only a limited number, and I think we're reaping what we sowed. We've cut so much of the RAF, there really isn't enough to go round for any lengthy operation. Christopher? I'm just wondering, do we, is, there, is there any sort of uh, uh, time that we actually know how long a tornado can operate at this rate without needing uh, a lot of work on it? Well, it's like anything else. There's a finite number of hours before it has to be, if you like, into major, into servicing, into this. Now, it, against the, the Iraq targets, they were flying something like eight hours a day, three tankers worth of support, a heck of a long way to go and a heck of a long way to come back. And, of course, that takes the, the fatigue out of the airplanes. It, it brings it nearer to the airplanes having to be taken out and, and, and major servicing. So, again, we, we, we're reaping the dividend of having too few squadrons because when they cut, initially it was going to be two tornado squadrons. The Prime Minister bugged it back up to three. But really, if we're going to do this properly, we need far more than that. And when we did Gulf War One, we had 32 squadrons. So really, you know, are we in the business of, of a major air campaign like this? And the answer to me is we might have the airplanes, but the personnel, you can only push them so far before they basically say I need to go home, I need to rest, I need to leave the service I've just had enough of round the clock bombing Andrew Brooks, uh, thank you very much for joining us that's Andrew Brooks, Director of the Air League Syrian rebels have been leaving the city of Homs under a ceasefire deal reached with the government. Homs saw some of the first protests of the 2011 uprising, which sparked the four-year-long civil war. Fighters linked to al-Qaeda are among those leaving, but moderate groups who've accepted the ceasefire are expected to remain. Well, a little earlier, I spoke to Hamish de Breton-Gordon, a former army officer and chemical weapons expert who advises non-governmental organisations working in Syria. We've had a desperate situation over the last four years in Syria, and in particular Homs, where the, um, where, where the revolution started, if you like. Um, I think people are at their wits' end. Certainly everybody I know in Syria is desperate for something, you know, a lot of leaving, or, and a lot are now placing their hopes on things like this ceasefire in, 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 in Homs. I think the Vienna talks are very important to a lot of Syrians. And dare I say, you know, the, the Russian involvement now and some of the... The, the really difficult alliances that we're going to have to get together, you know, do actually provide some hope. So I'm, you know, I, I really hope that this ceasefire in Homs, and we've had a few full storms before, might well hold and be the start um, to move things forward in some small way. Christopher, how was it brought about? How were those people who were against Assad OK to put down their weapons? Well, you've got to look at Homs in, in a way that, um, people don't actually understand the extent of this war. Um, I can't remember the exact figure, but at one time there were about, what, 300,000 people living in Homs at the, uh, when we started this war four years ago. 
We're down to about sort of 75,000 who may remain. And it has been a key point. If you can get a ceasefire, you can get people out. I mean, it's, it's actually something as simple as start feeding mm. begins in, in, into a new operation, and that is the scale and the importance of this. Hamish, when you see those people who are leaving homes, leaving their lives behind, who do say they want to go back one day, um, y- you yourself are involved in supporting the infrastructure of Syria, the hospitals and the schools. How difficult is it to sustain that at the moment? Well, it's really quite challenging. However, we've still managed to uh, run 32 hospitals and clinics and 43 schools in predominantly in northern Syria um, through our Syrian networks, getting the bare minimum of aid in. But, um, you know, people, everybody I know who, who has left wants to go back, uh, as Chris has said, uh, you've mentioned, uh, with, with Homs. And I think this is where, it, this is a part of the, you know, the grand strategic plan for the future of Syria. That, you know, I, I just hope people focus on a little bit more at the moment. Um, we've had the vote in Parliament last week, and absolutely right, Britain should be playing a full role in that. However, if we don't really dig into the humanitarian issues and make sure that, you know, as you've said, there is enough food and water ready to get back into these areas and provide the security to allow it to happen, then, you know, we, we're in danger of repeating uh, some of the mistakes of, of the invasion of Iraq in 2003, where where after the military piece, which is relatively straightforward, which could be relatively straightforward in Syria, you know, is, is then completely lost because we don't do the sort of post-conflict planning and reconstruction that is so badly needed in Syria. Christopher? I think we've got to keep one thing in perspective. This is a loose term, but a humanitarian truce. It is not a military truce. This, you, it would be lovely to say, ah, this is the beginning of the end, and it ain't that at all, and that's exactly what it is. Now, now Hamish mentioned those talks in Vienna. Uh, more than 100 Syrian rebels and opposition politicians meeting for talks in Saudi Arabia at the moment. Christopher, do you think that will have any effect? Well, the fact that they're meeting, although a lot of the people there are, are not meeting, for example, um, but there you see something which is very important is about the leadership of, of, of Syria itself. There's one important uh, group who was at that meeting, Aral Sham, who's saying, well, uh, we won't get anywhere unless we all agree that uh, uh, President Assad is arrested not killed, they want him to face justice. They say, well, there's no al-Qaeda at that meeting that is represented uh, from, from, from Syria. And there you get the beginnings of something. It's really good that there is a meeting, but the important meeting, I actually think, is actually is in Vienna, not in Riyadh. Hey, Mr. Burton Gordon, uh, what do you think about the long-term future of Assad? Do you think he will be able to hold on to power? Um, no, I don't think he, work, he will, and I don't think he should either. Um, again, all, all the Syrians I know in and out of Syria um, see Assad as, as the root of the, the problem here and see him as a person rather than so, so much the regime. I think the majority of them accept that, that he and the regime have a role to play, um, and with the Vienna talks, with a ceasefire in six months, and free and fair elections in 18 months. I think a lot of people are putting their hopes in this. And I agree with Christopher. The fact that people are meeting in Riyadh is, gr- is good news, but there are so many groups in this. Try- trying to get them all round the table, Al-Qaeda are missing from Riyadh, um, is very challenging. But, but it's a start, but I don't think Assad 
you know, if, if there is any hint that Assad has a long-term future, I think we're going to lose a lot of those moderate brutes from this process. And the other part of this, going back to the Assad, what happens to him, they won't agree that he's just sort of spirited away and goes off and lives somewhere else with his family. They want what they call justice. He has got to be on trial for what they believe he's committed. In such, in such a difficult situation uh, and a country in such turmoil, Ham- Hamish de Breton Gordon, what, what motivates you to carry on? Well, that, that, that's a really good question. I think, you know, all, all your listeners, you know, all the military people and ex-military people appreciate this. I think once you've been to war zones and, you know, rep- represented your country and done, done those sort of things, um, you and then when you see it again, and, and when I explain to my army chums what, what Syria is like, I sort of say, you know, think of Iraq and Afghanistan and multiply the complexity by times 10. But... I had a very defining moment, actually, in October last year. I was at our main hospital in a place called Bubble High in northwest Syria, and five ambulances arrived, and it was full of 27 children who'd been caught in a barrel bomb attack in Aleppo, and sadly a lot of them didn't pull through. Um, and I, I've got children myself, and I saw that, and I, you know that just struck me as being something that is absolutely wrong. And that, that gets me up every morning and gets me going back and, and gets me sort of to do whatever in any small way I can to help this. That was Hamish to Breton Gordon speaking to me earlier. Sit rep with Still to come, carry on training. Britain signs a new deal with Kenya. And what do the Russians really think about us? All right, Christopher, some other stories around this week. Uh, tell me about the new head of Mossad, Israel's MI6. Uh, the new man is named Ossi Cohen. Mm-hmm. He's been running the overseas agents operation. They're the guys that he puts out secretly uh, to do all sorts of things, from lifting to uh, uh, more exotic sort of uh, deeds. Exotic, uh, exotic <laughs> deeds. Yeah, he I like is, the way you call them. He is he is one very very in the great tradition of Mossad uh, uh, operators. He's pretty he's pretty independent, and now he's got the, he's got his hands on it. And uh, Bibi Netanyahu, the, the prime minister, was doubtful about him. But Wasn't, not anymore. Uh, he was even too strict oh. from for uh, Bibi Netanyahu. Really? So he is. Uh, ISIS will either love it or they will hate it. Now, just just one reminder: we talk about ISIS. We quite often forget that we've got Israel sitting right there in the middle of it, and they've just launched a new thing called Indeed. Arrow Three. What are they doing about? I mean, what's all that about exactly? The Israelis have got three three missile systems. One's uh, um, called David Sling which is aimed at the or, or to defend against the Hezbollah missiles. They've got about 100,000 of them. The, the, uh, the Hezbollah's got about 100,000 uh, missiles. The other one's called Iron Dome. They're the ones that try and knock out anything that comes from the Gaza. What they haven't had is anything to put against long-range missiles. And Arrow 3 may be the answer to it. Fully defended uh, in, in, a, in an area where they're fully vulnerable. Kenya has signed a deal with the UK allowing the British Army to continue training thousands of troops in the country. The agreement still needs to be ratified by both the UK and the Kenyan parliaments, but it means the army can continue to use its biggest foreign training area for live firing drills. Well, let's talk to the BBC's Africa correspondent, Alistair Leithhead. Hello, Alistair. Um, Just tell us what the terms are of this agreement. 
Well, I mean, it's a broad-ranging agreement, but essentially it, it extends a, a deal that's been going on for, for decades, really, which has allowed the, the British Army to train in this part of Kenya. Um, there are uh, cooperation deals between the two ministries of defence. Uh, there's an encouragement to, to try and bring in more of the Kenyan security forces in with the training that the British forces are doing. But essentially it means that the situation will continue as is, and that's that ten to 12,000 British troops will be able to come out to Kenya for weeks at a time to do their exercises here, which was in doubt. Um, the deal was uh, was only just signed. Uh, there was a lot of backwards and forwards over this. Uh, previous kind of temporary deals had been extended and extended. There was concern that uh, the training facilities here in Kenya were going to have to be moved somewhere else. But now it seems things are back on track. And do you know whether there's anything actually different in the terms of this deal to what's gone before? Um, I mean, I don't know the exact um, specifics of, of the loopholes, the way things were done. One of the agreements that was done, which is different, though, uh, is this idea of what happens when uh, troops do things they shouldn't that are against the law in Kenya while they're on operations here. And it's this um, issue that you find uh, often when militaries are based in, in countries, and that is uh, how that works. The agreement that's been signed, that's been done here, uh, is basically that if British troops uh, are um, found to be breaking Kenyan law, while they're on duty, they'll be tried in Kenya under a British court-martial. If they do something against the law um, and are charged when off-duty, they will face Kenyan justice. That was an important part of the deal that, um, that the Kenyans were insistent on before signing on the dotted line for the next five years, at least. Christopher, your thoughts? It's, um, honestly, this, it's, this is the sort of thing that no American government, for example, would have signed, isn't it? Um, the, the Americans see the whole thing, the next thing a soldier would turn up under the International Criminal Court or something like that, and so you never got them to sign up to international agreements on who should, under whose jurisprudence should a, to an erring, erring soldier come. The important thing here, isn't it, is the breadth of the British Army uh, and sometimes you know, a quarter of the active British Army all in one country in an important region, isn't it? I mean, it's a stepping stone for the whole Horn of Africa and understanding what it's about in, Indeed, Alistair, how important is it tactically for the British Army to be in this part of the world? Well, look, I mean, this is a very big training base. So, you know, you could have, you have training bases elsewhere. You have Canada, for example. But what you have in Kenya is a facility to be able to do battle group style exercises with live firing. So a couple of weeks ago, um, um, a team, I went up with a team uh, to film the, um, the Mercian Regiment, it was actually, who were out, 2nd Battalion, doing uh, exercises. We saw them doing um, tactical stuff with, um, with laser weapons and detectors um, against each other, and then we saw them, pardon my technical expressions here, I'm not a military man myself, <laughs> uh, we then saw them doing the live-firing exercises out on this vast area, an area that they're able to use mortars and artillery, um, machine guns, snipers, uh, advancing into contact, the kinds of exercises that really they don't do anywhere else, certainly not on this scale and certainly not in this way. And that's why the British government was so very keen to maintain this agreement. Uh, millions of pounds have already been invested in improving the facilities in a, a number of different uh, areas. We were at Archer's Post, which is way up in the middle of nowhere, uh, as I say, a huge area. There are lots of these different uh, bases up there. Um, they want to invest tens of millions of pounds more um, and that's what really this was all hinging on. And now this has been signed. The presumption is that it'll go both through both parliaments very easily and this will now then be extended will continue. As I say, it's a five-year deal, so it's a commitment for this level of troop involvement 
in Kenya for the future. There's another side of this. This is the longest term continuous training and cooperation uh, in the modern British Army. If you go back to the 1950s, with a sort of very sour relationship between the British and the Kenyans as a, as a colonial power, and with the Kikuyu uprising, uh, which produced, produced some of the most bitterest sort of animosities that you could imagine between two countries. And then it settled down, and it became an exercise almost to send the sappers out to build a few bridges, literally build some steel bridges, bailey bridges, but also uh, to build relations with, with, with the Kenyans, officers, officer material coming back to the United Kingdom to be commissioned, uh, training in the United Kingdom. It is probably... Although the parliamentary, uh, parliamentarians who will ratify this, it is probably one of the most important training exercises and cooperation exercises that the British Army has had in uh, since post-Second World War. That's certainly the impression we got talking to Colonel Tom Vallings down on the ground, how, you know, yes, British military, the army can do this in other places, but this is where the British Army, where the British government wants to do it, because it really is the kind of facility that you don't have anywhere else. And to try and build up the decades, as you say, of involvement in a country somewhere else was always going to be a, a big challenge. So to be able to, to continue that arrangement, uh, to continue the level of troop involvement and, and try and bring the governments, uh, the militaries together between the two countries, I think is the intention behind this deal. All right, Alistair Leithhead, thank you very much for your time. MPs are examining the UK's relationship with Russia, but what do the Russians want us to think about them? Well, Mary Dejewski writes about Russian affairs for The Independent. Good to speak to you today, Mary. What is it the Russians believe we don't understand about them? Probably about everything. Um, they probably think that um, understanding sort of ceased... Um, Certainly when the Soviet Union collapsed, at least then um, categories and opinions of each other were fairly clear. But I think they would probably um, say, if they were asked, that um, the British in particular have got things extraordinarily wrong pretty much since 1991. Mm. What, what would they like us to think about them? I think what they'd like us to think about them is that the end of the Soviet Union saw the emergence of a different Russia, that um, the British have been actually um, worse, I would say, than either the Americans or the continental Europeans in failing to recognise and failing to draw a distinction between the Soviet Union and the era of the Cold War and the fact that what we now have is a post-Soviet, non-communist Russia and that it, it inhabits um, a much smaller space than the Soviet Union did. And I think while it's taken Russia, and it's still taking Russia time, to get used to that idea, to its new borders, to the fact that it is a much smaller country. Um, I think it's actually taken the British um, at least as long and probably longer to realise that too. Christopher, MPs examining this, who and why? Well, they started off with they were going to examine, the Foreign Affairs Committee was going to examine three things. One was the um, what happened in Libya, the, what, why we got involved in Libya the way we did, then Syria. And then the uh, chairman of the uh, the, uh, the committee, um, was, uh, Crispin Blunt, was saying, well, you know, then we've got Ukraine, but we've got something else here, and that is everything relies, including Syria, on our relationship with Russia. So let's have a look at our relationship with Russia. But the true... Uh, story is not so much our relationship with Russia, is how they want us to think 
about that relationship because after all do you remember i mean go back to the days mary of, of say when when uh, mr galapachoff was uh, emerged on the scene we thought this was good this was new stuff wasn't it perestroika we we talked about and we all learned to know what it meant and then that changed and that changed really with the introduction of, of what's called putinism so, so mary what is the correct way to think about russia then <laughs> the correct way to think about Russia. Um, well, I wouldn't go to, so far as to say that there is a correct way and an incorrect way. <laughs> what I do think... Sure, sure both sides disagree on that anyway. <laughs> ..is that um, we have taken a very stereotypical and, as I would say, Cold War era view of Russia pretty much ever since 1991, but especially since Putin came to power. And we've allowed all the old stereotypes um, about the Soviet Union and about czars and about absolute power to come back into our image of Russia. Mm. And but I how much that is that about the fact that Putin is such a strong figure? Well, you say you say he looks such a strong figure, but I think if you were sitting in the Kremlin, um, you probably wouldn't see it that way. And I think one of the key things that you, you can look at everything that's happened since 91, everything that's happened since Putin came to power um, at the start of the new millennium, and you can interpret it the same the, the same evidence can be interpreted in two diametrically opposite ways. One way would say that Putin languishes after the old Soviet Union or the Russian Empire. He, he, he is aggressive in nature and expansionist. And then you could look at it from exactly the opposite point of view, which in fact is my point of view, which is that a lot of what Russia has been doing and the way it's been speaking is actually born of a sense of its own weakness and a sense of vulnerability. And when we look at Putin and see a strong man, we're actually seeing something that um, maybe is projected for the benefit of the Russian audience, but we should look at things in, in a very different way. And if you start to see Putin and post-Soviet Russia as weak rather than strong and trying, as it were, to uh, not exactly to conceal their, 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 their weakness, but to behave, um, to try to compensate for what they perceive as their lack of security, then I, have, I think you have a much better handle on what mm. Russia has been doing in the last 10, even 20 years. Fascinating stuff. Uh, Mary Dijewski, thank you very much for your time today. That was Mary Dijewski from The Independent Newspaper. Uh, Christopher, uh, before we go today, um, could we learn to live with IS for the next 20 years? That's the question that's being asked. Why yeah, exactly? it is. OK, so we've, we've got IS turns up, say, in the last two or three years, and everybody says, what are you going to do about it? And everybody says, what do you... A bigger question in the United Kingdom is, is it going to be boots on the ground? And we, we, we look at it in a shallow way like this. In America, in the State Department, I've been talking to people who've been thinking in a different way. You go back to 1946, and a man called George Kennan. And George Kennan looked about Russia, because it was the same problem. What do you do about Russia? It was the big threat that was coming up in, with, with the formation of the Warsaw Pact. And they said... George Kennan said, you can't fight them, and you've got to recognise now that you'll never beat them. Therefore, you have to contain them. And this so we're moving from what the Prime Minister's been saying recently, uh, degrade and destroy, to, to something completely we're different. We're not potentially. moving... Potentially. Yeah, OK, potentially. We're not there yet, and I'm not sure we're going to be there that quickly. We're but going what, to be what, there, are what, we, yeah, at some the, point? What the, what the Ameri well, some people in America are now saying, listen, listen to what George Kennan was saying in 1946, contain what you've got contain what is clearly an enemy and eventually you get to the same position mm. as you are uh, say with, with, with communism
mm. that it changes its form and it won't necessarily yeah. be ISIS, it might be something else. I mean, you're talking about containment uh, and you, we were talking earlier uh, before this programme started about the way IS might try to expand its what it wants, its caliphate, uh, into places like Turkey. How would you contain that? Just describe what they're trying to do and how you contain that. You contain it on, on an individual basis. So, for example, uh, the, the Turks at the moment are very worried that some of the Islamist group in Turkey are, in fact, IS. You look after that one and say, OK, Turkey, this is what you do. You do not have the great... Uh, conglomerate. You do not have the, the the great groups that will fight like 50 countries fighting IS because each country may be affected by IS. Then each country has to look at it and try and solve part and of the itself. And the containment is what? The exactly? containment is stopping it spreading impossibly that you that it will just sweep all before it because it will not. And that's what communism, you see, Kennan said, this is what communism will not be able to do. It will, say, spread to China or spread to Cuba or whatever it does. But then it contains itself within Cuba, within China, and it becomes different entities. Once you have a caliphate and you say this is a state, you look how difficult it is to run a country and a state. It is not the same thing that you can do on the black flag. Mm. Uh, and, and then just be a fighting army that you, you whip out and, and knock off different people at the same time. I mean, you're, you're talking about big levels of understanding here, aren't you? I'm talking about something is a complete change of how we would tackle not just IS, but the whole Islamist revolution. And on that note, we shall end this programme today. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. Don't forget, you can download this programme as a podcast. Next week, we'll be assessing the way the world is after a very busy 2015. Thanks for listening. It's goodbye from me, Kate Chabot. Bye-bye. British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio.